Ladies and gentlemen, we have a very special guest today with us on the I Drink From Skulls podcast. He put the cue in Queenslander. He's won awards for having winning the greatest pizza in Australia. He struck fear into the hearts of New South Welshmen all over the lands. He's a business owner, property investor, and mogul of the media, bloody legend, Mr. Billy Moore. Oh, Matty, that's a good uh, introduction, mate. I got to live up to that now. Uh the only thing that's in that resume, I just realised you didn't, you didn't put in there. You might not remember. You want to be too young, but I won Sale of the Century. Sale of the Century. Jeez, I got to get my facts right. No, that's uh, that's what, so that not many people know about. But uh, yeah, I won that when I was uh, in my I think one of had ninety three, ninety four. I grew up in Warringarra, and my parents used to love Sale of the Century. When I was asked to go on the program, I said yeah, I'll go on, and I ended up winning the whole thing. So it was a good experience. Not just a pretty face. Got the facts. Got everything happening. I love it. Ah, let's go. I drink from skulls. Drink from the skulls of my enemies. Well, for everyone watching along, uh, who the hell is Billy Moore? Well, that's a good place to start, I suppose. Uh, born in Tenerfield, New South Wales. Shock horror. So for everyone in Queensland, before you turn off, please just wait a moment. And for everyone in Wales, before you start jumping up and down and thinking, oh, mate, this bloke's a fraud. I come from the most southern town in Queensland, a little place called Wollongarra, population 400, and it actually <laughs> spans, the little town spans across the New South Wales Queensland border. New England Highway, Toowoomba, where you're speaking to me from, Warwick, Stantham, where we the high school, across the border uh, at Wollongarra. Uh, 300 people live on the Queensland side, the north side, and that's called Wollongarra. 100 live in the twin town, the other side, called Jennings. There's a train track ah. that separates two. They had a Jennings hotel and sold two is new. We had the Forex hotel, sold Forex only. And it was, um, let's just say, one of the greatest places in the world uh, if you're looking for uh, opportunities from the town. But um, I had a great upbringing there. Well, I was born in Tenerfield, my mother rushed me back across the border before the oxygen time would affect my lungs, she said. Mum's a legend. I basically uh, finished high school in Stanthorpe on the Friday. And I jumped on the Greyhound bus and went to North Sydney of all places to live and chase my dream. That was to play professional rugby league. And I did that for 11 wonderful years with the mighty North Sydney Bears. Retired at 28, came to the Sunshine Coast the next day and got involved in hospitality. I bought a pub in Toowoomba and I built my first restaurant in Mooloolaba. And if you think rugby league's a tough sport, which it is, Owning a first floor restaurant in Mooloola Bar in 1999 was twice as hard. It was such a hard thing to do, and I did it. I survived seven years, got out of the industry, did a few other little things for five years, and I've been back now in the restaurant game um, for about the or Jellos for the last 13 years. Here we are right now. That's amazing, mate. You don't do things if they're easy. You uh, you get after it and go all in. I want to go back to so you you. High school, Stanthorpe, small country town, very cold, good apples, lots of good stuff in Stanthorpe. Why did you, how did you get, like, you picked North Sydney? How was that, like, going there as a young bloke? That's a great, great question. So, I never played representative football until my last year at high school. I was lucky enough to get asked to go to an Armadale Rugby League camp when I was 15, and at this camp, there were 700 of Australia's best junior rugby league players, 15, 16, 17, 18-year-olds. And these were the kids who were Australian and New Zealand schoolboys. They were state players for those respective age groups. And then there was me, and I hadn't played any rep football. And at the end of the camp, 700 kids got the same generic training program handed out by Wayne Bennett. 
who was the coordinator of the camp, uh, the, the, the lead coach. And um, it was the same training program, but to me it was Billy Moores. So I went back to Ullawall and Garra, and I embarked three years on faith, hard work, tenacity. I trained every day to become a rugby league player. And when I was 15, I went away to representative trials, didn't make it. 16, trained every day, went away to representative trials, didn't make it. 17, I went away to, to my, the, the trials, 17-year-old, I trained virtually every day, three years, and I made first full rep uh, stage. Then the next week, the one after, the one after, the one after. And over the course of 10 weeks, I went not playing rep, playing in the Australian final. 34 kids played that day. I got me out of the match. And I was the only kid that wasn't contracted out of the 34. So when I come off the field, scouts from the Broncos, Penrith, Parramatta, the mighty North City Bears were waiting. They all offered me a contract. And my mum, God love her, she was my manager. She took, took control and she said, right up. And she'd done a bit of an assessment. And she said, you're going to go to North Sydney. And I'm sure you'll agree, mate, you don't argue with your mother. I said, no problems. A couple years later, I'm having a coffee with mum. I said, mum, why did we go to North Sydney? She goes, what do you mean? I said, well, the Broncos, six premierships, Penrith, four premierships, Parramatta, four premierships. North hadn't won a premiership for 70 years. She goes, okay. She said, I'll tell you honestly, the reason I see you to North is two reasons. First, I don't know how good you were because you hadn't played any rep football, so I wasn't sure whether you were good enough. And the second thing was, North, with all due respect, wasn't that strong a club. So they only had one Billy Moore. The Broncos, Penrith, and Parramatta are the three largest junior bases in the world for rugby league. She goes, they had 20 Billy Moores. And you needed to be showing some love just in case you got hurt, just in case you went up the stand and it would take a few years for you to, to build up. It just happened that I hit a form patch and basically I was getting better and better and better. And I played first grade within six weeks of going to the club. So she sent me there because one of the keys in life is to know your strengths and weaknesses. Well, not only yourself, but the people you're with, who are people in your team, in your organisation. And if you don't face reality, if you lie and actually don't respect your strengths and also your weaknesses, really what you're doing, the analogy, you're building your house on sand. Truth is building your house on rock. So she said, I wanted to build you on rock, and that's why I sent the Norse, because you're going to have the most amount of opportunities and chances. And in the end, I was able to grab my chances straight away. So that's how the boy from Wallingara ended up. It, I, I went straight to North Sydney. I got the Greyhound bus, dropped me off Oxford Street in Sydney. I got a cab across the Harbour Bridge and ended up living in Neutral Bay. So the whole of Wallingara wouldn't have been worth, I reckon, the block that I was living in, in, the, in Neutral Bay in the... The first six weeks, I hung out in North Sydney, Kirribilli, Milsons Point, Mossman. So the wealthiest areas in Australia. I went from Little Wollongarra, where our house was $40,000, to living in places that were $4 million back in the late 90s. So it was a huge transition. Uh, but mum was astute because, as I said, she worked out that North was a place where I had the chance to grow and develop the best. Mate, mum's on the money. Shout out to mum there. Is that a... The lesson there that do you share that with a long a lot of young people or people starting out in whether it's business or just that that approach have you worked your ass off every day for three years to put yourself in the position to be ready for the opportunity is that something you 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 talk about and yeah because as I said at 15 when I embarked on the training uh, I, I didn't know I was going to make it 
I, as I said, with, with faith, dedication, hard work, passion. It's funny, when I started out training, when I came back from the camp, all my mates, they were like my age, a year younger, a year older, I gave them the program as well. So this is our program, not more. And this is ours. Let's go train. And I reckon the first couple of weeks, there would have been 15 of us. Then there was, then there was 10. Then winter came. Cole, Rainy, six, four, two. Then, then there was just me. And I was the only one that, that, that kept on going. And in the end, physically, I, I mentally, physically just got bigger, stronger, faster. Uh, off, off the back of doing this work. And so when I came to the 17 year old, I can remember the scouts, one of the scouts, I think it was from Penrith, said to me, Where have you been? You never played football. Where have you been? I said, I've always been here. You just never noticed me. So that taught me the lesson of life. You've just got to keep banging on the door. If you want to go through the door and it won't open, you've got to keep banging on it and banging on it until your passion runs out or you, until you break and put the door down. So my passion was never going to run out. I wanted to be a professional rugby league player. I wanted to play for Queensland. I wanted to play for Australia. So I was going to keep banging on that door. Yeah, that's amazing, mate. And in terms of you know size, you're not there. There would have been blokes way bigger, faster, stronger at that time. But you just outworked them to get where you wanted to go. And were you so when you debuted, were you 18, 17, turning 18 or 18? That's a great question. I debuted week two of round. So week two, 1989, Norse played Penrith at Penrith Park. I weighed 80 kilos. I was 17 years, 10 months. I played under 21s. They sat me on the bench for reserve grade, and they didn't use me. So I walked off the bench for reserve grade, and um, the coach asked me to, mate, want to sit on the bench for first grade. This is Frank Stan, who coached Australia. He was a North Sydney, he's a North Sydney coach. He goes, I want you to sit on the bench for first grade. And I went, oh. Shit, well, shit, basically. Wow. I'm sitting on the bench. Norse are down by 30 points. Penrith in 1989, and I think about 10, maybe 11 internationals in the team. Greg Alexander, Brett, uh, John Cartwright, Mark Dyer, Roy Simmons, all these superstars. Anyway, five minutes to go in the match, the manager turns and goes, Billy, you're on, son. You're going to make your debut. Out you go. So I charged out. I was wearing shoulder pads and headgear. Uh, I was the eighth youngest player to ever take a first grade field at that point in time. Anyway, I ran on. We got the ball. We got a penalty. So I took the ball up off a tap. Ran straight at Mark Guy, 115 kilos. Peter Kelly, 120 kilos. I have the distinct, almost dubious honour of having the shortest ever debut. They knocked me out cold. You couldn't have picked two bigger, tougher men to take your first charger. <laughs> I didn't uh, didn't use the intelligence side of the equation there. I made, so that was my debut as a first grader. Anyway, I dropped back and played reserve grade for a couple of games. And then I made my run on debut later that year against me at North Sydney Oval. So I played, I played three first grade games that first year. And then the next year, I was full-time first grade. North as a, as a club and the, the team and what you guys achieved, it was just a golden era from, from, you know, I was only quite little at that stage, but... Were there, were there many guys with similarities to yourself at Norse in that they weren't superstars when they were younger, but you, you built this amazing team and did some really cool things in the like what's now the NRL? I was probably the one who came through with a less amount of, I suppose, badges and trophies, and but the group was really young and ambitious, and the club did a wonderful job of bringing together the youth with experience. They went and purchased three wonderful players. They bought uh, the late, great Peter Jackson, 
they bought Mario Fedic, and they bought Pat Jarvis. And those three brought a certain level of steel, confidence, toughness, work ethic. And they blended that with these young blokes, Jason Martin, Dave Fairley, myself, David Hall, Tony Hearn, all these young guys coming through. And that first year, I played three first grade games, and then I, I basically dropped me back. I ended up playing reserve grade, and we won the reserve grade competition, North's first premiership in 30 years. Had all those names. I mentioned all those young blokes were in that team, and uh, the great Kerry Bostead was in that team as well. It was his last year. So they blended these um, youth with these experienced players in a great environment. Um, and North were renowned for not delivering. And in my career, played 11 years at the club, 10 years full-time first grade. We made eight semi-finals series. Four times we came third. But unfortunately, we never made the big dance. So people go, you guys never did anything. But in that era, that decade of the 90s, games won or lost, we were the third most successful club across that whole decade. Unfortunately, there's no grand final appearance or grand final win there. But um, it was a good bunch of people to be around. And as I said, a great learn for business there is blending youth experience. They cut away a bit of Deadwood. Sometimes you've got to cut away some of the old to bring in the new, and you've got to make sure you bring in with the right attitude and principle. That's a lot of success too. The, the finals were five teams versus eight now. Uh, to be up there that high, that consistently for that long is... There's a, there's a lot of success there, and I love that lesson too. Like in business, you you want to be you want to be aligned with someone who's got the runs on the board, been there and done it, so that you can learn those lessons that no one can teach you other than the people that have actually been there and done it. So yeah, I think that's a really great share, mate. You've um, you know, you played had a very successful first grade career from you know 17 through to 28. We'll talk about that in a sec. Represented Queensland, represented Australia. What was your favourite, like what was the best sort of thing that you, you loved the most about it all, mate? Things I loved most about it, I used to love being around like-minded people, the same thing. They wanted to become the best they could become as, a, as an individual, as a group. I loved the adrenaline. You can't buy the adrenaline. I, I didn't care. Ruben Murdoch can't buy the adrenaline that I got when I was running out for Queensland. I used to love living in a world of black or white, clinical and clear, win or lose. There was no grey. The world I lived in was you either won the game or you lost the game. You can't put lipstick on a pig. So I lived in a world where it was all about the outcome, getting the result. How do you get the result? Sometimes it's semantics, sometimes it's luck, sometimes it was this, sometimes that. But ultimately, get the win. Deliver. And that's I love living in that world where it was clear. When I came out as a 28-year-old into the business world, that's where I really struggled because I'd lived my whole life in this world of black and white, not shades of grey. And the, the real world, you know, you're surrounding yourself with people with different motives, different drives, different you know, wants, and, and it creates this world of grey. So I had a, took me a bit of time to adjust to that. That's the things you miss most of all. I didn't miss the pains. <laughs> I didn't miss the, miss the nerves. That unison of everybody, all the team, all the coaching staff, all the support staff, all working, just drilling down to one thing. One thing mattered. The scoreboard on the Sunday afternoon at five o'clock must say win. That's what I missed because he had that absolute focus and the amount of momentum. I love the word momentum in life. amount of momentum and drive that gave you was something that it's very hard to 
find something similar these days. But um, it was a great experience, and that's probably what I miss most of all. That makes sense. In terms of, of state of origin, it, um, there could be nothing greater than that. The the atmosphere, the the theatre, everything in between. How did you go sort of down in Sydney versus Queensland? I'd love to hear a bit more about that, mate. Uh, it, it was great because obviously we're very loyal. The House of War is built on, on some pillars, and one of the pillars is loyalty, never unwavering loyalty. So to be a bear, I'm a bear. I'm a Queenslander and obviously an Australian, but to play for Queensland was my dream. I remember one of the first images I had as a kid was 1980, Arthur Beaton running on the field at Lang And I can remember as a kid, so I was eight turning nine, and I remember like, Dad, how much pride he had. I didn't understand it. Wow, I didn't, didn't I realize that was about the, one of the most emotional things I'd ever seen my dad at that point in time. And he said, oh, Arthur Beaton, this is his first time for Queensland. We've been waiting 20 years for him to come and do this. Didn't realize it. I bought in, and then for me to, to be around the late, great Peter Jackson, he's the one who really taught me. And when you say Queenslander, and all your beautiful New South Wales listeners, this, this is what the Queenslander means. And these three wonderful things, Manny, that carries through in the law, means three things. Queenslander shouted means help your mate. Number two, find a solution. And number three, no excuses. You're a professional. What a professional means to Billy Moore is we're not paid for excuses. We're paid for solutions. So go and find them. So when you wear the Queensland jersey or wear colour of Queensland in any sport, you must find a solution and win. Because if you try to glorify a loss, you're putting lipstick on a pig and it doesn't wash, especially when it's against New South Wales. So for me to represent Queensland was a dream. I remember, obviously, the Queenslander call. That was said walking down the tunnel uh, in 1995, game one. That just grew. The momentum that was massive. The next year, we won that series 3-0. The next year, game one was uh, was in Sydney. And Rod Wishart was taking kicks for goals. It was in the City Football Stadium. Probably wasn't full, but it would have been like, just say, 40,000 there. I'd never zoned out in the footy field. But all of a sudden, the ball falls off the tee. Happens twice. And I, saw, I just all of a sudden sounded out and I start hearing this noise in the crowd. And I can hear it just chanting. And honestly, I was that proud. It's the only time you could ever put me in the same category as Wally Lewis. Because the same thing happened to him. And the crowd's going, Billy Moore's a wanker. 40,000 years of Boston called me a wanker. I was the proudest I could ever be. That's a bit, yeah. You, you know you're winning when that happens. Jeez. <laughs> and that, that you know, that, I know you know it very well, but that, that, War cry the chant of Queenslander. Every person who's, who's a Queenslander knows it. They love it. It lifts us up all the time. It's uh... it's the biggest brand in Queensland. I don't know. I'm the proud voice of it and face it. And it'll live long past me. But when you have Adam Scott going to the tee-off box in a playoff for the Masters and someone screams Queenslander to him and he puts his hand up. When you see Cameron Smith, the golfer, Last round of every tournament, he always wears maroon. It, the, the Queenslander chant permeates so far and wide, not only around Queensland and Australia, but globally. Uh, as I said, for all those that are listening, that's the three things it means. Help you, mate, find a solution. And no, I think that's something that's, uh, one, it's phenomenal. But as a, to look at it in the, you know, year 2023, where some of the, the, those types of values of, 
I don't know. It's it's a different world now, isn't it, Billy? Um, but if if you had that approach to life, the the, su- the success you would have is uh, sort of unmatched, unparalleled. That's sort of something you've noticed in, in the world today. We've gone, at, I don't know, a bit softer, a bit bit of a different approach these days. A lot more complicated. There's a lot more a lot more forces at work. But I always believe simple things are what matter the most. And I, I, I believe, Matty, control the control. There's some things you just can't control. So there's no point worrying about those. But there's things you can control. It's important that you go about trying to control them and having some influence on the outcome through those control. I've spent so much of my life around sport, but the only in restaurants, so it's actually teams. Well, I think I've spent 35 years around teams. There's four common things I find in teams. Successful teams have these four qualities. First thing a, a team has, and these are the controllables that you can influence with yourself and those that are in your team. Communicate. Great teams talk. People will always talk. And if you don't foster an environment inside your team or your group, then they're still going to talk. But what they're going to do, it's going to be festering talk. They must create a channel so talk goes up. You must have people in your team who realize their voice is respected and wanted because everyone's had a journey. Everyone has been a life experience. Everyone's got lessons. I don't use the word failure. Get rid of failure. Replace it with the word learn. So everyone's on their journeys. They've all had learnings along the way and they've all got something to tell. So you need to have a team which respects communication, fosters it, but has it going up. Because if you don't let it come up, it will still happen, but you'll have a festering sore that will grow inside your team. The second thing great teams do is they worry about the one percent. When you look at great teams, whether it be business or sport, they don't walk past certain things because they know whatever you walk past, that then becomes the standard. So I find that not so much the word pedantic, but great teams know they've got to make sure those little things that we sometimes forget about, we overlook, we don't want to do it's a bit too hard, you've got to do it. And the great guys do it. The third thing that great teams do, they get the right people on the bus. I find that there's a great saying, change the people or change the people. So the people are on your bus, you've all got to be going the same way. And if you're not, you've got to try and change them to basically get on the bus and go, go the direction we need to go if you can't change the people, you've got to change the people. You've got to remove them. I always say, A graders recruit A graders, B graders recruit C graders. Great leaders, great decision makers are not afraid to not be the smartest person in the room. And like, why would you want to be? You want to have other people around you that are smarter. They can, do the, they can give you suggestions, give ideas. They empower the team. A graders recruit A graders. A B grade leader puts C graders around them so they feel smarter. That's what you don't. And the fourth thing great teams do is they know their job. So Craig Bellamy, I interviewed him once and he told me at the Melbourne Storm, when you think about rugby league, no side in the last two and a half decades has been more successful and at the same time have created more stars and then lost them and then created some more. But how did you, how did you do it? And his answer was, as I said, simple. He goes, I make sure everyone knows their job. Every player has three KPIs. Three key performance indicators for every game. Whether you've had 400 games like like Kevin Smith or a rookie of one game, you all have three jobs. Do your job. Do your three jobs. You can do job four, but you've got to do one, two, and three first. If you don't do those, we've got some problems. Because he knows if everyone does their job, that team is going to be in the best position to win the game, to have the outcome you want. So controlling the controllables, I believe, is the most important thing I've learned on that journey through those wonderful steps, the Bears, 
to Queensland and Australia and now to Jellos, I've realised that the commonality across sport and business for teams are those four things. Mate, that's fantastic. So, so many great lessons there for the parallel with what works in football, teams, people, translates to business and life. It's the same stuff. It's uh, a big lesson that, yeah, everyone should take good note of, mate. So One thing I, I noticed with success, it's hard to be successful. It's 10 times harder to maintain it. And one of the things I learned, I broke my jaw when I was 21. Norse, it was the last trial game of the season. And we, we just bought those wonderful players, Pat Jarvis and uh, Mario Fennick, Peter Jackson. Anyway, I broke my jaw the last trial game against Manly. I was wide shut for 14 weeks, so it was a really bad break. I remember when I was out for the 14 weeks, Norse won 13 games. All of a sudden, they they became inside, which continued for another decade, but I wasn't part of it. I was sitting there watching it unfold. And a great mate of mine took the 13 jersey off me, a guy called Gary Larson. Superstar. I was good. He was great. And he went on to play Origin that year. And I'm sitting there as a so it wasn't quite 20, 21. I'm sitting there, watched Gary playing great, wearing the number that I thought was mine. And Pat Jarvis took me aside. And he was a police sergeant from Newtown in Sydney. He's the guy who discovered Jeff Fennick. And this guy was tough, toughest team. One of the days just before I made my comeback 14 weeks later, he could see I was moping around a bit. And he said, oh, what's wrong with you? I'm sitting there watching this team perform and they're winning, but I'm not out there. I deserve to be out there. He said, oh, you deserve it. I said, all right. This is the greatest lesson I learned. He said, you deserve nothing in life. It's what you make and take every day is yours. You've got to earn it. You don't deserve it. But wow. So that actually taught me the lesson on continued success. As soon as you think you deserve success in your team, in your business, in your life, all you do is make yourself weaker. You don't deserve it. You've got to earn it. Now, Orgello's does 100,000 customers a year. We don't deserve any of that business. We've got to earn it. We've got to make your experience at Orgella. From the moment you think about coming in to the moment you leave, has to be perfect or as close to perfect as we can make it. Through the service, the food, the welcome and the goodbye, we've got to earn the right to have you come back. So if you want to be consistent in the life, earn it. You don't deserve it. Love that, Billy. Such a, such a powerful message there, mate. What I'd like to do now, we'll take a quick break uh, and we'll come straight back. 